This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. of the Earth Regenerators podcast. We're happy to have you here. Today, we're going to be two people hosting. Stephen Morris, hello. Hi, Jacob. And me, Jacob. Uh, Great that you're all here. And we are interviewing today Will Ruddick, uh, who has a project called Grassroots Economics, which started in Kenya and has been developing a lot of very different local currency designs in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places now around the world. Hello, Will. Nice to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here, Jacob. Awesome. And I thought we'd start with where do you come from? How did you get into all of this? Yeah. Well, um, I've been living in Kenya for 13 years, and it's home for me now. And I I, I plan to just keep living there. Um, And um, I got into this as like community currencies um, through uh, physics. I was actually studying particle simulations at Stanford, and um, I had a professor doing econophysics, which was kind of using the same modeling to look at how people interact and uh, in an economy and, and sort of defining what that was and uh, sort of rethinking what money was. And then I, I read about uh, Bernard Leotard's work, which was sort of a synthesis of many, many different types of uh, currencies or alternative currency kind of innovations and the, the history behind them. And I was just... Uh, I was just awestruck, you know, that we we live around so much economic trauma and just seeing it from that lens, um, you know, a lot of our social problems and environmental problems are sort of uh, derived from economic trauma, you know, created by imperialistic and uh, colonial monetary systems. And um, and so moving to Kenya, I, I was with the Peace Corps and uh, I started I, I learned Swahili, became a teacher there, just lived in villages and uh, all of these lessons around community currency, they seem to apply there dramatically just because there's this chronic lack of a medium of exchange. And so there, it was a really nice uh, place where I could show people examples of people doing this in other places like Brazil, and they could really just see the utility of it instantly. Um, and then slowly by slowly, we got more and more into centropic agroforestry and using these as sort of a, uh, a bootstrapping mechanism for um, having a credit that is redeemable for ecosystem services and produce coming from land. Okay, before yeah. we go down there, yeah, I want to ask, why did you decide to go with the Peace Corps? Um, yeah. What was it like to make that jump? Because it's a pretty big thing to suddenly go to Kenya and start working there. I, I was always just horrified by America. I mean, I grew up in California, and uh, I would just see all these, you know, manicured lawns and people watching TV at night and the sort of like blue glow down the street of these kind of zombified people that were in no connection to each other or nature. Um, if you've ever seen the, the old movie Brazil, um, it, it felt like that growing up. I felt like I was in some sort of illusion and, um, and I wanted to be connected uh, in a real way. And I, you know, I love nature. I mean, the, the redwood forest and everything, but I didn't feel like there was a 
a commons that I was part of. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, looking at moving to Kenya for me, I mean, when I left for Peace Corps, I sold everything I had. I mean, I, I had a pickup truck and a bassoon and a saxophone and uh, <laughs> that's about it. I sold those things and I was like, I'm never coming back here. I felt extremely liberated and all the fears people have of quote unquote third world countries where there's lawlessness and lack of drinking water and all these things, like this is the daily life of all these like women we work with and they're fucking fine. They're just, you know what I mean? And so like seeing that stability of a mother and her child and, and how they move on and it gave me a lot of strength and learning, you know, how to, how to build commons and, and cooperatives um, based on actual real trust and service in those communities it has been really powerful just seeing seeing that element of it without sort of living on this sort of derivative market based on petrochemicals and the US dollar and all this stuff like getting back to actual basics has been really beautiful to me and I think it's a it's a privilege to live and work there and the the networks that are that you see there are extremely rich and connected like when you work with a community there you're you're witnessing an amazing fabric of social network of trust that in the U.S. is sort of central around Costco, you know, instead of each other. Mm-hmm. And so we've lost a lot of these systems of trust that are still there. And so building from that is, is quite powerful. And, yeah. and so you just alluded to that. And then you thought, ah, this is the perfect place for community currency. What yeah. is currency to you? And why do you think that people have a right to be part of the yeah. currency. I, I actually I am trying not to use the word currency very much these days. I, I tend to use it more of, as a verb. You know, it's like a it's it's an emergent phenomenon of trust and service being shared, you know, and flowing in a, in a community. And um, I mean, I love how Art Brock uses it as a like to see a current a currency in that sense. So I think in a lot of these communities, when the when the British came and you know created these imperialistic monetary systems and then handed it over to an elite that runs the country now, um, traditional systems of currency of a flow of trust were really broken apart and and actively destroyed actually. And so there's a lot of traditional systems that were just that are just gone. They're still sort of there. They're in the the physical memory and sort of the cultural memory of these communities, but they're they're they've been subjugated in such a way to say that you can't actually trust each other anymore unless you have the shilling, you know, the stamp of the queen, you know. And so that that combination of people connected to each other, ecosystem services, haircuts, you know, education, all these kind of connections of service that we have to each other are very still very rich there. There's still that connection there. But every once in a while, I mean, quite commonly, there's no more medium of exchange. And so the, the social fabric just break, rips apart. You know, there's no longer those connections and people stay stagnant. The markets just stagnate rapidly and it's, it's chronic. And so this idea that like a medium of exchange, you know, that to create recreate that flow, to weave it back together would be very useful. And in the same way that they used to use, you know, cowrie shells or even just ledgers, old ledgers. I mean, their original ledgers, the oldest history we have is of ledgers and those come from the Rift Valley and it's just bones notched with little etches, different kinds of patterns on them to, to acknowledge 
who whose farm are we working on next how many cows was that you know that you know the idea of just a memory system for how we share with each other is incredibly important and you know the the stories told were a memory system as well the kalabash of the chief would be like the gourd was like a symbolic system of of uh, reciprocity within the community right he would receive into his kalabash he would you know redistribute from his kalabash that's you know like a traditional gourd you know? so it's just a, it's a really rich and beautiful place and i think we can learn a lot from those places and and as we develop different tools that sort of bring people back into that connection with nature and their farms and each other they're really you know excellent at now spreading that information to the next village and next village and next village and so like we've had a lot of success around just kind of a trainers of trainers kind of model where it just it just begins to flow and the next neighbors next neighbors until we've have you know 60,000 people in Kenya that are using these types of systems um, over the last few years yeah so I'm, I'm wondering because I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the place of someone who doesn't have a background in currencies or sure. yeah. or flows yeah. like you're talking about imagining many people in the earth regenerators community here yeah. they're used to just using dollars or whatever country they're using um, and they may have heard some of this crypto stuff, especially since we just recently worked on the Gitcoin grant to support the community. Yeah. Um, and you jump right in the deep end of talking yeah. about what's happening in, in Kenya. Can you make a little more connection between what those people, what Westerners, generally speaking, are yeah. used to and how that might connect more into if they're not familiar with yeah. other yeah. systems? Yeah. So I, fundamentally, when we think about um, credit, what's really there is some form of trust and service. And so when we, I mean, I'll give you a basic example. Like if, you, if, if you've got a cell phone and you're buying a subscription for using it or you're buying airtime credit, what you're doing is, is that you're believing, you're giving your trust to the telecom and you're giving them some money in this case and they're giving you a credit. That credit is redeemable for their services in, into the future. And so what, what's happening is that there's a promise being made by the telecom, right? And you're accepting that promise, right, in an exchange, and you're redeeming it as payment for their services in the future. So a, a subscription at a gym is the same way. Um, if you've got a, a, a pass in Denver for getting through the, the turnstiles on the highway, for instance, right? You've basically paid for an access token, a credit. You, you've you've extended your trust into this infrastructure or this organization or the state or whatever it is. Um, so we're around these types of kind of credit instruments all the time. Like if you if you buy a, a you know a subscription to a yoga class, right? They haven't yet paid for it, right? They haven't, they haven't actually you know, given you any value yet until you start redeeming them. That is extension of credit, right? And so in a, in a system where we trust one another, it's quite easy to do that, right? I can extend you, I can give you a loan, or I can let you borrow my bicycle when we are in a, a system where we feel safe and, and trusted. And so in a, in a village that's doing uh, agroforestry, for instance, there's a lot of inputs to start doing centropic agroforestry, for instance. You've got to, you know, work on the soil. There's, a, there's, a, there's the upstart of it is intensive. You know, there's a lot of uh, inputs needed to begin these types of, of farms. And um, where are they going to get the money 
to pay for those inputs. And quite often that's not there, right? So there's no national currency in this case. What do we do? What do we do when there's not enough national currency? Well, can we extend trust? Can we extend credit, right? And, and so, you know, that even before we ever talk about currency at all, we, we think about extension of trust. I, I think that trust point is important because until talking with you previously and then yeah. re- re-emphasizing it, I don't think of paying, prepaying my cell phone bill as trust. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm, I'm here in Colombia now and, and I've got a SIM card and I paid for it. But I am in the background trusting that when I put the card in my phone and I dial a number that it's going to connect me. Right. And I think that's an important piece that we miss as I look at, well, how do these non, I'll just say non-monetary, non-national or central currency systems, how do they replace it? And you're, I hear you pointing towards that. It's like, okay, yeah. if I focus on trust rather than money, mm-hmm. how does that shift the interactions between people? Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, how, so in the sense of, uh, in the telecom, the you giving them money and you trusting that you're going to get a service for them. Um, if, let's say it's an ISP, an internet service provider, and you're buying a subscription from them, if they oversell that, right, if they have this much bandwidth and they sell you, they oversell that to many, many, many clients, and there gets to be a traffic jam on their network and you're getting bad service all of a sudden, your trust breaks down, right? Oh, yeah. I had that come before yeah. coming here. I had to deal yeah. with, with my yeah. provider having yeah. interruptions. Exactly. And, and the same with like a plane flight. If they oversell the seats on the plane, oh, man, people are upset. That's a serious breakdown of trust. And, and so, you know, with this telecom here, maybe you hadn't experienced it yet, but maybe you are experiencing it, like the number of outages on the network. Right? There's a lot of like, what, what is the guarantee of quality? What is the promise of that telecom? And of course, you know, there's a contract there. If you read the fine print, there's some sort of contract being created. And so, you know, are we able as a community or as a society to actually make promises and, and keep them? And what does that system look like that, that secures that, that makes us feel comfortable around doing such things? And I think when we're operating in that kind of a space, like, a, you know, we want to do, we want to come together and we want to all put our time and efforts into a commons and, and build a, a, a agroforestry plot as a community, how can we measure that? And, you know, because that, that is, an ex, you know, instead of putting money in, people are putting their time in. How do we know that there'll be any sort of accountability or reciprocity on that in the future? Maybe it's done on someone's land. And that person in the end is just going to fence it off and say, this is mine, right? This happens in Kenya sometimes. I mean, it's, it, it's intense. So creating that social contract to say that these people are going to be able to get produce, you know, vegetables and, and whatnot from that land, kind of a CSA, community supported agriculture approach, is, is really powerful because it, it, it's, it's as if, you know, it's like going back in time, we used to have a lot of uh, like the, um, the movement around intentional community was very guru driven and you sort of, you had a lot of like sort of unquantified trust in some entity. You know, it's a little bit like trusting the government or something like this. And there's there's really no actual contract there to protect anyone. And a lot of the, the more successful ones nowadays have turned into cooperatives and land trusts where they've clearly defined the, the way, the reason they're together, the mediation if there's disputes. You know, they've learned through a lot of hardships. And even with community currencies, we've 
we've learned a lot from the last 30 years of community currencies how they fall apart. And oh man, they do, right? Especially when there is not any clear liability or obligation uh, behind them. That's actually a very interesting point to put in the question. Why currency at all? Yeah. Because, okay, right now we just have a community that wants to start a centropic agroforestry plot. Yeah. Why do we want to create something monetary, something tokenized, instead yeah. of building something maybe completely different? Yeah, well, so I don't. I think when we say monetary, we're still using this frame of uh, colonial fiat monetary systems. And I think that's sort of the problem. If we think of monetary as establishing clear commitments and promises and honoring those and accounting for them, that's still economics. That's still money in the sense of the flow of trust and service. So I think we need to basically clearly define money in this sense, right, rather than a commodified version of that, which is the sort of the fiat system, which is enclosable, which can be, you know, basically, you know, think about Donald Duck sitting on all his gold coins. That's our sort of current monetary system. It's still basically like that. It's an enclosable system where only certain entities can issue trust and credit, right? So if we say we as a community can establish a constitution and agreements with each other, we can account for things, you know, how much inputs, how much work are you putting into the farm? Like, if that's important, and if there's some you know, need to measure some sort of accountability and the honoring of promises, th those promises can flow. They can act as a currency, or, or, or better to say, they can currency as a verb. You know, they can actually begin to flow. And then that flow connects all these different value systems together. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know that, you know, like there, we're not getting away from monetary economics by um, stopping the concept of tokenization. <laughs> We've got a, a nice little mariachi going on. Um, what, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that currencies are based on actual real things, like real living agreements. And so that's our basis. So we, when we're working with a community group or even individual social enterprises, we're saying, what are the agreements you can make? Right. These are essentially constitutions. These are, you know, in a way, they're sacred oaths. You know, you're, you're saying exactly what your offer to the community is. And I think that's that's really powerful. What I've noticed is in my own exploration of money, and I want you to speak to how you've noticed money as we know it, the colonial money, is a replacement for trust. That I'm done with my transaction and person to person, at least, I don't need to know anything about you. I don't need to care about you as the shop merchant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, that it, that was the method of imperialism and colonialism is to actually convince people that they, they don't need to trust each other anymore. All they need to do is trust the state. Right. And so you've delegated trust out into this, you know, a third party that we can say, oh, we all mutually trust the state and therefore we don't need to come up with agreements with, with each other anymore. It, I mean, invoices, you know, if, if I send you $100 for tomatoes and I expect you to deliver them in two weeks, like, there's still trust there. When you, when you send Amazon money, you're still trusting that you're going to get that product. Um, but, you know, the, the idea with a, a local currency or a, you know, local voucher system is that you're establishing long-term reciprocal relationships with people amongst each other and you're you're basically trying to uh, build a commons around mutual trust and service right and that that concept of creating trust with your neighbors and your you know local uh, you know um, 
bioregion and, and, you know, all the services that are in that community is something that's really foreign to us because of this. We, because we've grown up in a system where, quote unquote, money is like the, the air we breathe. We don't question it. It's this foreign body that we have somehow been taught to trust really through imperialism and the, and the use of violence, actually. You know, the monopoly on violence is how the state forces people into uh, using their trust system. They sell this ability to the banks that they can create credit on behalf of the state, right? And so they, there's this whole system of saying, you know, we are the trust givers. We are the ones, you know, the, the state can do this and you don't need to anymore. In fact, you shouldn't even, right? The, the, the more you do so, the more you're sort of undermining the state. And so if you look at a lot of like historical court cases around these types of instruments, that, that is essentially what the state says. They say, look, we are the only people who can issue credit, full stop. We're the only people who can actually create trusted instruments. So we've decided we want some form of currency voucher system, something in order to help people flow value through the community. Why local? Why not immediately integrated with some sort of global standard? The EU, for example, has said, oh, it would be a great idea if just everybody has the same currency. Why do we want to localize these things? Well, I think of it as an ecosystem. You know, if, if there are states or municipalities or, you know, nations or, you know, massive regions that want to offer some kind of services, and those services are real and, you know, uh, based on quality and whatnot, and um, they uh, they establish a voucher redeemable as payment for those services. Wonderful. I, and so moving governments away from the money printer and into um, establishing credit or vouchers redeemable for state services, I think that's a that's a wonderful way to go. And and if that was what the states were doing and what the you know EU and whatnot were actually doing, I would be you know. It's, it's not necessarily the end-all, be-all. Still, we want local value systems. So if I have a gym membership, that is a credit that's being established by the gym, right? So they're making a promise to keep this space and make sure that I can get value for what I've given to that organization. And it is by default local. I, if I can trade that voucher for someone else, I can say, hey, I'll give you some of these. Now you can go to the gym. Wonderful. That's secondary circulation now. So there's the primary circulation of just the issuer and you know the redeemer, the holder. That's sort of the initial promise. But now being able to say someone else could use this thing as a you know another medium of exchange to say oh, I'll trade you this for some eggs. You go to the gym tomorrow. Um, that is something that is sort of necessarily local in a sense because you're starting from trust, and you know our trust in states and whatnot they are what they are, you know, whether or not people trust states and, and the currency that states produce is, is really right now, you know, we don't really necessarily have a lot of choice on the matter. Um, whether or not you trust that the U.S. dollar is going to hold its value um, is really sort of a, a speculative concept because there is no real contract on what it's redeemable for. You can say it's redeemable for your taxes in the U.S., um, but it's not really clear that that's true uh, the supply is actually based on that promise, right? So what the supply of U.S. dollars is actually based on real promises. When what are those? And so uh, it's very rare that you see a state actually define the promise that it's 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 basing its supply of vouchers on or its currency. Um, and so I think you know going local in this case is just to acknowledge that 
you can't stop people from trusting each other, first of all. So like establishing credit amongst a, a church group or a parent-teacher association um, is a beautiful concept that they can actually uh, define a purpose, uh, establish a credit based on actual real goods and services that they have to offer each other, and build towards that purpose, um, rather than waiting on the state or banks to give credit. Yeah. So you're talking about trust and agreements, and I'm just thinking back to my issue with the internet provider before I mm-hmm. came here. Yeah. And I'm upset because my, interrupt, my internet's being interrupted, yeah. and they have an agreement with me, a contract that I actually, by signing up and paying the money, I've agreed to, and I haven't read because it's so damn complicated, yeah. and it's in their favor anyway. Sure, yeah. Say something more about contracts and trust, because I've been, I've been one who kind of just free freewheels it through people. I, like I trust yeah. you, yeah. we have a great conversation, but that's because I haven't really embedded myself in these kind of networks of trust. And right. I've been contract averse in one sense because it gives me wiggle room, but at the same time, I want to know what I can expect from other people. Yeah. And ultimately, I do want to be held to some kind of account myself yeah so how does that contract trust money thing work in the world that you so so we have sort of a a a triangle here imagine you've got this kind of uh at at the top of it you've got value producers real value like service providers like you providing services of doing video editing or uh, whatnot and or someone that's you know our cooperative that's producing all kinds of vegetables um, what they're doing is they're creating a promise for their services. So this is similar to the contract that the, the telecom might create. Ideally, much more simple um, and readable and understandable by people. So, I mean, contractual design, you know, ought to be uh, elegant and, you know, say exactly what is the quality of service being offered, right? So it's, it's this much produce, for instance, or it's this many tomatoes, you know, and, and equivalent of other... Uh, vegetables. So you have a voucher redeemable for, let's say, a CSA basket every week. That basket has, you know, some type of quality uh, on it, right? So the number of vegetables or the kilograms of the amount of food or the calories, uh, you know, can be defined in lots of different ways. And then you have a ledger system that's recording those uh, commitments, okay? And so what we do is we work with communities to create what is a legal contract, right? It's like like an invoice. It's it's They're bound by contract law, um, and so they're, they're creating those, they're establishing them on a ledger. That ledger is basically a public ledger where people can see those contracts and they can also interact with and trade them as well. So if I'm holding this contract to your CSA, right, I've, I've subscribed and I'm holding the subscription. Can I actually trade that, you know, the next basket to someone else for a massage or you know, some other produce, eggs or something like that, right? So it creates fungibility or tradeability uh, in in that agreement. So we're basically making tradable agreements is, is the, the idea that we work a lot with. And there's a third component. So you've got your two components there. You have the value system, the, val- the, the, the value, the service provider. You've got the ledger that's recording this commitment, this agreement. And then you also have validation, right? So that's a third element. Um, you know, historically, this would be like the, the value system would be the treasury, the ledger would be like the exchequer, this would be the old school British, and the, the, val- the value system would be the mint that's actually stamping, you know, a stamp of approval of the queen, for instance. So 
what is that what's the valuation system look like well what we do a lot in a village will get people to come in and vouch for or endorse the produce right so we'll do that in several different layers we'll have village elders uh, you know come in and say yes they have tomatoes it's a voucher for tomatoes wonderful okay um, we have peer-to-peer endorsement right where you can actually see the flow of those vouchers i could see how much has been interacted with so the transparency of the ledger is a really beautiful thing and so this is why we use decentralized ledgers because we don't want anyone to be able to edit uh, those interactions we want them to be a record of the the honoring of promises and the flow of those promises right and so that's this is why we've gotten into quote-unquote blockchain as a form of decentralized ledger we don't use any sort of volatile instrument they're all legal agreements is what's being recorded there right it's not a 20 year old with a white paper you know making a token um you know and they're audited agreements as well right so we have photos that they have eggs and we've done due diligence on that system so those three pieces there where you have value trust and memory right valuation you know value in terms of service provision memory in terms of a ledger you know this ancient thing that we've had as humans it's basically part of our society is ledger keeping like we we need memory systems that are beyond our own brain right so notches on sticks you know going our tally sticks for instance are really amazing instruments of history of them and we need some sort of trust mechanism and and that's when we get into certification this is where we get into things you might have heard of like nfts you know these are these are data instruments right that tell you something about something else right so you know in terms of our primary objects here we have a voucher which is a bilateral agreement right it's between the issuer and the holder we have a ledger system that allows transferability and records of that and then we have certification systems that are based on trust that that basically give a cv or give a uh, you know the authenticity of this over time and those can be based on lots of different mechanisms you can have the red cross come and validate something in a refugee camp we work a lot with for instance or you can appear and you can have peer-to-peer valuation where you're looking at history and stuff like that yeah so we have the trifecta we yeah. want yeah. trust memory and value yeah now, of course, this can be done in very many different configurations. There's different parameters. We've yeah. already mentioned demurrage. We have yeah. mentioned that you can resell contracts that you've made and so on. So there yeah. are these various design parameters. Right. Um, can you maybe illustrate certain things that you often think about when you yeah. go? Because you've now yeah. designed a lot of different yeah. local currencies, right? Yeah. yeah. What well, the, something interesting, sorry to interrupt you there, that you've been doing this for how long? Um, I mean studying it i mean i think over 25 years now but i think you know using these different types of instruments in kenya since 2009 or so so a good over 10 years yeah Yeah. so if you want to walk us through maybe some case studies some examples and why you decided to make this design decisions that you made in those that would be super interesting yeah yeah so i mean in terms of the parameters so you have this you know the value the service provision there and then you have this kind of record of a contract record of an agreement or a promise what's in that promise you know and so you talked about like the fine prints you know in a way like these you know the promise of the the telecom and of course they have all kinds of different clauses and whatnot in there and those are those are choices right like what 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 should be in those those clauses and so we've been essentially you know working with community groups to identify two things not just them but also the holders of these promises 
what makes both parties feel comfortable, right? What is the framework around that that is that makes them feel comfortable? So, you know, uh, uh, mediation or mitigation of conflict, for instance, that's in the contract, right? Like, how do we deal with a situation where I've got your voucher? Maybe I I worked on your farm or I worked on the community farm and you've given me vouchers for doing so that I'm supposed to be able to get produce for, but now you've closed the gates and I can't get that produce. Who do I complain to? What do I do, you know, as a holder, right? How do I, how do I have any security in that? And so one thing we put a lot of emphasis on is uh, mitigation of disputes. And we follow a lot of, you know, Eleanor Orstrom's principles around commoning and management of the commons. So having things like graduated sanctions, and clear, you know, conflict resolution uh, system. So, for instance, in this case, you would say, you know, that there's different levels of uh, mediation where, like, initially it would be the group or the the issuers, you know, to deal with their own conflicts in, internally. Then it goes to the village elders, who are sort of the lowest rank of government in a way. They, you know, they they hold a lot of the space around trust and mediation in the community. Then it goes up to like assistant chief, chief. We've never had it gone beyond even the village elders, really, but the chiefs sometimes will take part. And, um, and so, you know, this, this example where someone has issued a promise and now they've broken it, there's a lot of traditional methods for dealing with these types of problems. And, you know, I, I, I can list maybe a few off the top of my head. There's, um, there's forgiveness is possible. Um, that's a big one. And it means a lot. And generally that is going to be, uh, some kind of a ritual or ceremony where the, the person says that, look, I'm not, it's a little bit like going through bankruptcy in the U.S. I mean that, you know, where you have some type of a forgiveness uh, policy. Um, that'll be generally yearly. They'll go through the kind of debt jubilees and things like this. So they're really powerful. Sometimes it means, you know, throwing a feast for the community, killing a chicken, you know, doing a dance, you know, like uh, maybe crying, you know, like there's a lot of different practices around, um, getting rid of the guilt around holding debts. So that's, it's a real big concept actually. And, and one of the, you know, dealing with indebtedness, especially in a community that is locked into a national currency as being the only way to remove indebtedness is, is really powerful, is to, to unlock the guilt that people hold and the trauma, really that's a, a bunch of trauma among neighbors. Another thing that they'll do for, um, indebtedness is allow someone to work on the community garden for instance like okay you need to re-earn some vouchers you've spent all your vouchers right meaning that those are ious right you need to accept them back but you haven't maybe for some legitimate reasons or maybe less legitimate please do some work for the community or offer x and y services to the people who have more right you know to, to create balance or settlement so we do a lot of like credit clearing is it would be the technical term like how do you clear that uh, indebtedness in the society. Um, I mean, paying in kind in different ways, you know, like, a, you know, paying with a chair or something like this, or, or paying in cash, you know, to basically, you know, re reduce your indebtedness. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, also traditional, uh, you know, wisdom sort of uh, um, ways that people will uh, even like roll over debt. So that's another thing. So we say, okay, we're going to roll this over into the next cycle. Um, there's also, we, we deal with community funds. So anyways, there's, there's a lot. So, uh, dealing with mitigation and identifying how they're going to deal with defaults or breakages of oaths and promises. I think that's, it's, it's just a basic thing. I think, you know, in society right now, we don't, 
if I if you just make an invoice to someone else and he doesn't fulfill it, yeah, you could go to like small claims court. But that's a big jump, actually. That sanction is too large. It's not graduated, is what Ulstrom would say. You need some sort of way to deal with that. Maybe you're friends with his friends and you start calling his mom, you know, like, hey, your son just did this. I've been in this situation before, you know, where, you know, like someone took some equipment from, you know, the, the, the team and we had no way to get it back. We really needed it. And so, but we knew the mother of this woman. And so it was like, hey, you know, where's your daughter? And, and eventually she returned it. Well, you know? I, yeah, I've seen that yeah. on social media is a common thing is to try to publicly shame yeah. the company yeah. that has lost your luggage. That's one I saw recently. Someone is like, right. you know, calling them out. And but again, you're dealing with, in many cases, a large yeah. company yeah. versus versus a smaller community. It's not great. And yeah, so having systems of, of mediation and mitigation of, of conflict are super important. So that would be an element in these con- in these contracts, right, that you're creating. You're, you're specifying exactly this the scope of liability, how to deal with media- mediation, right? So that, and that's similar to, to probably some of the stuff that's in the telecom contract as well, right? Probably to it. Oh yeah, you got, you got yeah. A, a mediation, a binding arbitration with the choice of the telecom company. Yeah, you? exactly. In, 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 in Bogota, you know, with their lawyer or something like that. So, you know, those can be good and bad. And, uh, another thing that they're going to agree on off the bat. So when they're, when they're doing this process together as a group, and note that it doesn't have to be a group. It could be a, a sole proprietorship or a social enterprise creating their own voucher as well. And we do work with those as well. Or even just the cooperative. Um, sometimes those are legal entities. Sometimes they're associations of entities or people coming together. So they, if it is an association of people coming together, they will establish sort of a minimum commitment, right? So like, you know, let's say it's 20 women in a group. They all have their own businesses and Someone's offering eggs and someone's offering, you know, uh, tomatoes and whatnot. They will say, well, what's what's the sort of minimum commitment? And, and generally we work with one month's sales revenue, right? So that is generally like we'll measure one month sales revenue in each of the businesses. And the a level at which the, the amount of credit that we will certify that we've audited is equal to that one month's worth of their sales revenue, right? So coming up with what is that level amongst the group, and if it varies a lot between the, the members, generally we'll take the lowest, right? And and so that's a big decision of how much to mint, in other words, what is the minting process? And I, I that to me is another one of these sort of almost sacred things where you say, well, how many Tron coins or how many regen tokens or how many you know uh, Ethereum tokens or Bitcoins are we actually going to mint and what does it mean? You know, is there an actual basket of services behind these? Is it is it is it collateralized in that sense? Is there something real behind it? Um, and so, we want that to be so. Like we want there to be honorable promises that can be fulfilled, right? You don't overpromise, please. You know, like limit your overpromising as much as you possibly can to what you can actually do. And I think that's you know it, personally as well. It's like if I know I can only commit to X, Y, and Z please only commit to X, Y, and Z. Don't commit to X, Y, and Z and A and B and C also, right? If you can only do that within time bounds and even knowing that's not easy. And so this is part of the the audit process with the community and the elders to come together and say, let's get real guys. You know, how many tomatoes can we actually produce? Right? Right. Well, and as as someone who tends to overcommit myself, I asked you sort of about this on the the ride together and I'm realizing as you say that, that, 
having that com- as a community process, I get the essential feedback. Yeah. I can stop colluding with myself to say, oh, I can do yeah. six things yeah. this week. It's like, no, the community now knows I can do three of the six I promise yeah. every time. Yeah. So they can say, no, no, we're not going to let you. Right. So there's whatever it is that's being exchanged. Yeah. That system, yeah. It, it, that, and that's a total world beyond money. Yeah. It's trust. It's his mutual trust and, and the flow of that. And I, I think I, there's this example of this woman who buys baskets as a friend of mine, and she buys baskets from this one woman every week or every month. And she goes there and the woman lays out the basket and she buys one. And she goes and I, and I was suggesting to her, well, why don't you buy the next hundred baskets from this lady? Right. Why just buy one? You have enough money to do so. That wasn't the obstacle. And she says, well, I would do that, but I'm, I, I don't trust her in that way. I think she would run off with the money or produce worse quality baskets and whatnot. And I said, well, okay, fine. Can there be a community around this woman of basket weavers that all give a commitment together with the chief and the elders, right? That, that makes you more certain. So would you be able to buy a voucher for the next hundred baskets from this woman, from this group now, right? And it would be redeemable for everyone in the group. So you're this is this is I'm really into recently like Mark Burge's promise theory stuff because we talk he talks a lot about how individual promises amongst a group can create trust, right? So from a third party perspective, like this woman, they're dealing with their own promises amongst each other, and all she has to do is now trust the group. It's like trusting your computer. You don't have to check every circuit in the computer. They have a, a bit of redundancy in systems. And so that's, it's a nice, you know, it's a little bit like looking at, uh, you know, what Muhammad Yunus was doing around microfinance back then. He says, like, can we trust groups better? Or are we more trustworthy as groups? And so I really, you know, so the concept of mutual credit, the mutuality, mutual risk, mutual reward, like it's very powerful. And so creating commons, right, where there is a shared sense of responsibility, right? There's shared resources, there's shared risk, right? Um, it's it's powerful, and so us to to recommon, you know, to to basically re- recreate commons of services amongst each other is is very powerful, and it it opens up a door to a whole another realm of how we can, you know, because th- this idea of having individual credit systems among every individual, a little bit like if you've heard of trust lines or something like this, it it's it's very burdensome and it's very hard to gauge the authenticity of that versus going in as a group that's been audited, you know, like there's, there's, it's a lot more power behind that. And, you know, ideally that's, you know, even looking at business vouchers and, and these kinds of things like, yeah, we trust them because we have friends going to that gym and, you know, no one's been burnt so far and there's a legal system, right? We could do a class action lawsuit. Maybe, you know, I mean, it'd be hard. That's a huge uh, step there, right? It's not graduated as Olstrom would have wanted it, but still like, we sort of have this uh, this notion, and I, I think that uh, just that extension of trust, and if we can look at you know a CSA program where I'm paying for a subscription and I'm getting a food basket every week, if we understand those systems as extension of trust, they're beautiful, they're amazing systems, and now the currency effect is emergent from many many of those systems working together. So no individual voucher needs to be, quote-unquote, a currency, right? All they need to do is establish and honor trust and commitment and promises of services, right? That Even if it's between individuals or between groups, those are beautiful instruments. Now, what we're trying to do is create 
millions of those that can actually interact with each other. And so this is sort of the next layer around why we're using decentralized ledgers. Okay, before yeah. we go to the next level, yeah. if we presuppose trust, this all works out really well. Mm -hmm. You just said yourself, however, that this trust does not necessarily already exist in the community. Could you tell us a story of one of the projects that you've implemented, yeah. how you went through that trust-building process inside a community? Yeah. You know, it, this is sort of like the social magic in a way. Like generally what we're trying to do is find institutions or work with groups that do have some trust. And, and the question to, to individuals and to groups is what can you, what promises can you make and what promises can you keep? Full stop. And, and you know, for, and, and for the, the, the rest of the community, what promises can you accept, right, from that individual or that institution? And if there is none it's not a very good candidate for any sort of voucher or you know if you can't if you can't create an agreement and honor that agreement and no one's you know no one's even going to accept that agreement well i think um we there's a lot of like you know in the currency world and whatnot we've you know there's a lot of like this kind of airdropping mentality or just saying like let's just give people whole bunches of tokens and that'll somehow start to act as a currency And we don't really need trust, actually, at the beta. Even like in the blockchain world, you hear the term trustless. And um, mm. I, I think those systems don't really work. I think, you know, they, they're essentially, in, in a sense, a, a scheme, a Ponzi scheme to try to, to, to fool people that there is trustworthiness in this voucher just because people are trading it. Because they can, you know, it's like, oh, look, I sold a, I sold a Bitcoin for a pizza. Now it's worth $14. And, and just to assume that there's, there's value there just because people have traded is super dangerous, right? And so I, I you know, absolutely it's true that when there's, there's lack of trust, you have breakdown. And I think as a whole society, that's what we're witnessing is the lack of trust in these systems because they're, because they're turtles all the way down. There is nothing real at the bottom of the US dollar other than a few elites getting extremely wealthy, right? And owning, you know, the, the labor and workforce of masses of the population, you know, like what right does Jeff Bezos have to my services? Well, we've given him that right, you know, and there's no, there, there's no real promise there actually. So, you know, he's in a way he's holding this, these instruments, you know, that we are all supposed to uh, bow down to and give him our services. Right. But there's no actual real promise behind those instruments. They're just been created. Yeah. Yeah. Smart way out. Just choose the communities that already have trust. All right. I, I yeah, it's a simple simplification, <laughs> but I I don't think there's. It's kind of like um, you know, the Matrix. There's like there is no spoon. Like there's there's no in the framework of currency. We'd like to pretend that we can get away from trust, right? Like you were saying, like it's it's like a, a substitute for trust, and I think we've got that in our head to so much degree, and we don't realize like. No, no, no. There's no actual real spoon there. Like we're, we're in a, it's an illusion, right? That, that money somehow replaces trust. And we're, we're coming to the consequences of that right now as a yeah. society. And so, yeah, trust is real. You know, that, that is the real, and, and ser real service, service is also real. And, and uh, if we want to build derivatives and all kinds of, you know, stacks of you know like trust upon trust and things like that fine as long as there's something real at the bottom of it you know and it's not turtles all the way down that there's actual some grass there you know the, the turtle standing on 
Um, so I don't think we can get away with it. And I think, you know, that's, it, there's a, there's a challenge to people and groups to extend trust. And I think, you know, we, like back to the intentional community movement that has turned into cooperative design and land trusts. It's a great example of people saying, oh no, we can trust each other. Let's write it down. Let's, let's come up with an agreement that we all agree on. Like, I think that's a good thing for people to do. And I, I feel like, you know, we sort of resist that because of maybe, you know, the contract of the telecom. We've, we've learned to be very avoidant of those things. And we just, we haven't taught even children for generations now on how to common, how to cooperate, how to build agreements. And if you look back at like early, uh, you know, like when the, the British were creating clubs, you know, way back and nautical contracts and these things, freaking amazing actually they're they're amazing contracts and we talk about contractual design and blockchain and all this stuff these guys were creating amazing contracts i mean even look at something like the magna carta you know um you know if, if i'm going to take a ship and provide all the inputs for these guys to survive this voyage they're going to come in you know they're, they're part of the contract as well the sailors the captain you know, the wood that built the ship and all this stuff. And, and we're going to sail this around the freaking world to go get spices and bring them back. And then we're going to actually divide up, you know, what the, you know, the, the spices that come out of this and everything like that. That contractual design is super interesting. You know, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to it. And they're also probably not as even, you know, uh, nasty in terms of the, the telecom contracts we might have now. But so contractual design... I think is just, you know, how do we establish trust with each other? And, and also, you know, this, the concept of trust, not just being about the individual contracts, but conglomerations of agreements, right? So if we have groups of people that have established those systems within each other, and those groups are interacting with other groups, we can back off the need for this, this, you know, the, the razor blade nuance of contract design. And so that's, you know, so building good, basic, uh, primitive concepts and contracts, right? Collections of those contracts, connections between those contracts, that now is a way to currency is the verb, right? To, to enable flow to happen, right? So you've got these basic, it's like your Legos. You've got your little Legos of trust and service, simple contracts, very simple. How do those build on each other to build derivatives and connections? And that's where we get to things like liquidity pools and value sharing between contracts and between systems. So there's a lot of beautiful space around this kind of cosmo-local framework where you, you, you have simple local contracts, right? And then you have the ability for those contracts to connect outwards, right? So, you know, between ledger systems, between other types of value systems. Um, and Let's so there's a beauty that. to yeah. that, yeah. So we just said there's actually value to designing local currencies. Now you've developed dozens of them. Um, vouchers. So now why connect them? Why connect them? Yeah. Well, I mean, lots of reasons because when I, for, for one, like in Kenya, for instance, we've got uh, over 50 right now, different local currency systems, and they're all backed by a legal contract for different goods and services, right? So I have a voucher for eggs, and maybe, maybe, you know, like a, a whole mall of businesses that are, that are supporting that voucher. So I, and then there's this other space where I've got a voucher for fish tacos, right? And I've got vouchers for, uh, you know, education, like uh, tuition and things like that. So how do we connect those value systems together so that I don't have to manage a portfolio now of 50 different vouchers? I mean, 
not to say that that's impossible. And a lot of a lot of these communities, because we we create a standard market rates between them, it is pretty easy to trade them just amongst each other. But still, you know, th- this idea of you know an individual woman selling tomatoes having fifty different vouchers is is an intense ask for her to be able to sort of manage that portfolio. And so what we're working on and, and have been working a lot with for since about 2018 is how do you create sort of markets of markets, like aggregated markets. So if I've got this one voucher and someone comes in and says, I'll provide a connection between this voucher and that voucher, right? So this is called liquidity investment. And really, it's just an exchange is what it is. It's, it's like the guy on the side of the street that's got pesos in one pocket and dollars in the other, right? So he has invested in two value systems, two vouchers, and he's willing to provide that exchange between them. So that as a basic primitive function now, right? So in, in the blockchain space, that doesn't need to be a person. It's just a contract that's holding in escrow two different vouchers. Um, you know, the end user doesn't even really have to know that or even use it directly all they have to know is that it exists and therefore the marketplace for these two vouchers becomes merged right so rather than forex or token exchange you just have a merged marketplace now and any voucher that i have on either side of that marketplace is good for that entire marketplace so i can hold one my fish taco voucher as long as there's that connection to these other vouchers or i've got my csa voucher and there there is a connection to my you know uh, yoga right. voucher Rideshare, rideshare, right yeah, exactly. I can interact with that marketplace, right? So it's a little bit like mycorrhizal fungi. You've got these connective tissue that is connecting all the different root systems together, right? And any entry point into that mesh, right? And this is what in in crypto we call a decentralized exchange, or an ex- you know, it's a huge, huge, it's it's a it's a multi-routed you know networking system that connects all these different value systems together so any access point into that allows me access to the entire marketplace and so that's if you look at some of the data we've got from what's happening in kenya you can see this kind of mycorrhizal fungi layer sort of growing of these connections between all these different value systems and any entry point into that gives you access to this big root mass and so that's you know this idea of like the commons of commons Right. What is the global commons of all the services that we are offering, you know, environmental services, you know, counseling, every, you know, that we're offering as humans, even to the earth and to each other. How do we tap into that as humans? And it's to expect one currency to do this is like, you know, you're you're creating enclosure by by even thinking of it like that. Right. There could be massive network tokens that are not naturally connected to a lot of the root mass, right? That zip through, fine. Those would be sort of organically chosen. Those could be bioregional. You could have a, a curated voucher or you know that links to this bioregion, for instance, of many vouchers within the bioregion. So you can still have access points that are like key access points, but you're not expecting one fungi or one root mass to take over the entire system because that's vulnerable. And it's prone to, uh, you know, uh, enclosure, right? So this is why we don't want, you know, the regen token to be the voucher for the regen community. That doesn't make any sense. Why can't, why can't this community create their own value system and connect to the regen network? Wonderful, right? So as a network token, the, you know, you can have a lot of uh, ability to access many, many different portfolios around you. And, and those can be really beautiful. And so, 
you know, seeing this sort of portfolio space of connected marketplaces, that's what we're trying to build. And so like we're, you know, like this, we're at a region conference here right now in uh, Barichara. If you imagine that we are here to interact with all of the value systems being built around Barichara, like kind of like as a seed exchange and a connected marketplace, that's that's kind of how I'm envisioning, you know, the, the regenerative finance kind of movement as, as growing as a, as a grow, it is growing that, that mycorrhizal fungi root mass system. You know, it's connecting all of these pieces together. So you've mentioned it a few times now, blockchain. Yeah. Why did you decide to use blockchain and how does it figure into all of this? And I'm going to jump because there's sure. a piece I don't know that you know. What do you do before blockchain? Without blockchain, how did you do yeah. all this stuff? Because that blockchain is now being sold as this way to do all this stuff that you couldn't yeah, possibly yeah. do before. Yeah. So yeah, I don't. I don't think you need it. You. You just. You know what we used to do in the past is, and we still do a lot of this is paper contracts. Literally, just you know, like a community comes together and creates a constitution. It's signed by the local chief, or you know, you have auditors to make sure that it's it's witnessed and all that kind of stuff, and uh, you print paper vouchers. Generally, those paper vouchers will have some kind of expiration on them. And when they expire, there's either a, like a stamp that you get from the community that you would pay for to renew them. And that tax, if you will, goes back to the community. So we've been doing that. That's what we've been doing the mostly for the last 10 years or about is creating um, just paper vouchers and, and creating exchanges between those paper vouchers manually, you know, just like the dude with two vouchers in his pocket. We would have that in, in communities. Um, and I, that's worked quite well. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of the cost to printing and, you know, if those systems do get large, you get potential, you know, fraud and, you know, counterfeit and dealing with that got, because we got to a scale where the cost of each individual new voucher we had to print was, it, it got to be very high and having to vault and deal with the management of the distribution of those it was very hard for us so an individual community that wants to do this that can afford security printing and you know uv ink layers and things like that fine it works it works just fine and um you know there's you know the yeah i mean even even with digital systems now we the first digital system we built was um it was it was based on ussd which is like sms's and behind that was just a SQL database. And SMSs or text messages. Yeah, just a little text message. Yeah. So you would send a text message to basically the server. It would listen to it. And based on your text message, it would do the transaction. It would, it would record it on the database, right? And that, you know, your balances would be, you know, debited or credited, you know, depending on the thing. And it would check, make sure you had enough, you know, of these, these vouchers and whatnot. And that worked fine for many years. And we, um, we, the idea around tra transitioning to blockchain for us was to say, well, we don't want to be the, there was a few reasons. One is to say, we don't want to be the only entity holding this database, right? It's a huge liability to us. It's a risk to the communities. What if we just turn it off one day? I mean, we had backups of it. I mean, we weren't, you know, like if there was like a, a power outage or a server died, like, yeah, we could keep a backup of it. That wasn't really the issue. It was more just us not wanting to be the gatekeeper as well. Like we don't want a platform like Facebook where they own your data, they own all your information, right? So we wanted to have something decentralized. And so even having a blockchain, quote unquote, a, a distributed ledger, a distributed database where three people are holding the ledger system, that was a lot better than a, 
a SQL server by one entity. So we had a redundancy. And also it meant that um, no one entity could alter. You'd have to have a consensus of those three entities holding these servers to, to validate a transaction. If someone tried to change it on one, the others would say, hey. So says, hey, no, you can't, yeah, you can't do that. We all have to agree. And so, so the consensus layer, and, and if you think about blockchain as simply ledger services being provided by several organizations or several individuals, that again is a, is a economic commons of service, right? And you end up with some kind of voucher that gives access to that network as well. Right, just like for tomatoes or anything else, and so creating, you know, systems that are backed by actual promises, even on the blockchain, right, um, is is what we've been after a lot. And so we we actually went through several different blockchains, and none of them had any of that sort of integrity of real promises. Their gas prices would just inflate constantly, um, and we couldn't actually even run a node in those blockchains. So in other words, we were at we were subjugated to buying gas from these guys at volatile prices with no quality assurance. And, and gas yeah. is the transaction fee that's charged for those who... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just very, very simply having a distributed ledger within a bioregion or a community where several individuals in that community are running these little servers is a nice way to make sure that your system's backed up that any of those ent- no en- no one entity or you know can alter the ledger so it's immutable right um, it's it's just a nice system get rid of all the volatile crypto and keep blockchain in terms of distributed ledger and there's there's a lot of you know if you look at holochain for instance you know creating peer to peer networks of nodes that connect to each other beautiful that's wonderful you know one problem with all of this yeah You've done local currencies. You've done blockchain. What does the central government say? Yeah, uh, I heard that you really had some problems in the beginning yeah. with the first project that you installed. That you literally got pulled in front of the national court and everything. Yeah. How have you been dealing with that? Yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't actually. It wasn't our first program. It was a second, uh, and it got really big locally, and it was a very verbal community, a very outspoken community, and uh, it was working really. This is called Banglapesa, and. Uh, Someone tried to, someone was crossing a railroad track and tried, there's the story anyways, that they, they tried to bribe the police with these vouchers now, those physical vouchers. And the police took them in and said, that, you know, this looks like a secessionism. And this was during a period where there was like Al-Shabaab and all this kind of terrorism stuff going on. And, so they, so, and then there was this thing called the Mombasa Republican Committee, which is like a, what was called a terrorist organization anyways. And, um, they said, oh, you know, you're trying to be secessionists. And they brought in the stormtroopers and whatnot and knocked down doors, you know, the riot police and stuff like this. And, you know, with grenades and all this stuff. And they took our little HP printer and uh, then they took us all to jail. And, uh, yeah, it was super intense. And, and we ended up in a six-month court case and uh, we won. We ended up doing a lot of petitions. And basically they, the a statement came out from the director of public prosecution saying that, there was no law being broken. And uh, we've subsequently done a lot of due diligence around legal systems. We work with the Red Cross and WFP, World Program and World Food Program. And uh, the, the legal precedent around saying that you have a promissory note redeemable as payment for a service is enshrined by law everywhere in the world. Like, and to stop people from issuing those 
right, is, is essentially to stop people from trusting one another, right? It's really hard for a government to really stop these because they really have to admit in some ways why they're doing it. And in our case, it was, you know, this, this woman, and this came out a lot in the court case. Here's this woman who was in jail with us. We had there were six of us in jail trying to trade her tomatoes for school fees, right? And to explain why that was illegal was so embarrassing to the state, you know? Why on earth? And, and here the state's mandate for the central bank is to produce liquidity, right? They're, that's actually one of their mandates is enable trade to happen. And these people have no access to credit in any way, right? So it was very embarrassing for the state. And I think, you know, there, there was a really, there was another really, I mean, a very historic case of the Wargel experiment. There was a town called Wargel in Austria back before World War II. And uh, the state won in this case. And um, I would really like to sort of, uh, you know, do some mock trials and retry these things because it really brings out how the state defines money quite clearly. And I think we really need to hold them accountable because really the, the, their whole, the whole thing is that they can issue, the state is allowed to issue credit with no liability. That's it. That's the, that's the power, the superpower they're holding onto with violence, you know, and they're not accountable, right? They're allowed to create this entire system that we must survive on. We're the ones held accountable. And yet they're issuing these things with no real We're problem. supposed to trust them. We're, we have to, you know, that's the, that's, that's the trick, right? right. Is to force us into believing that. And, uh, and so they, you know, like there, there's a real, uh, don't, don't speak about it, you know, don't, don't, you know, so bringing it up and, and, and talking about what is the real liability of the state for all this vouchers being created by, or these, these credits being created by banks, for instance, you know, they've been giving a lease to, you know, and it's an exponential growth in the money supply right now, right? And we're seeing the result of that. This crash is directly related to that. We're in the middle of another one right now. I mean, it's really been continuous, you know. And, and you know, going back to Bretton Woods and Keynes and a lot of, you know, economists for years and years have been saying, please don't do the system as it is right now. Like, actually create real agreements. Um, and so I feel like, you know, it's, it, that time is coming and I think, you know, blockchain and a lot of, you know, cryptocurrency is, is poking the beast, you know, is basically saying like, hey, we can create credit instruments. And in a lot of cases, most of crypto is just copying the state, right? They're just, they're saying, oh, well, we can do what you do, which is crap for the most part. It's like, you know, the 20-year-old creating a trillion tokens for his white paper. Um, so there's a lot of that. And so we're trying to, I mean, we... We try to distance ourselves from "quote unquote" crypto a lot, even though yes, we're using cryptography, but we're actually creating a legal contract with liability. And I think that's huge, you know, to say that you're liable for the promises you make. I, you know, it's it's really an ethos, and that honesty and integrity around it is so important. And if we don't build from that, we're just copying the state again. We're just creating more and more imperialism. We're you know tricking the Venezuela or El Salvador into saying, "Oh, Bitcoin's a new national currency." Why couldn't you have created your own voucher? And you know what? Uh, yeah. So you've pointed towards something that Joe has talked about, but you haven't mentioned it. And this is the DAO, D-A-O, a decentralized sure. autonomous organization that a lot of people are all excited about now. I mean, just like the cryptocurrencies, you, every time you go on social media, somebody's created a new DAO for their project. Sure. Yeah. And I'm wondering uh, your take on that. Um, what are you, are you doing anything in exploring that particular structure? Are you already using that structure without the technical formulation around it? Yeah, exactly. The last part. Yeah. So, 
I mean, any of these contracts you could define as a DAO, right? So the community or groups coming together, defining the parameters for a contract. There's voting that goes on, right? You're deploying a contract on the in the blockchain in this case. Like you're saying, like, you know, we're going to record this contract now. And then there's levers in that contract. You know, like, do we want to mint more? Where does the where does the demurrage go? The taxation system. How would we decide where that's directed? Those are all voting systems. For the most part, we're doing those with hand raise of hands and like traditional you know systems around that. And we're you know like the 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 actual blockchain contract that has the vouchers description and demurrage and how that works right now. That should be owned by a DAO. And that's what we're working on building. So actually, we're looking for help on that. We've we've been working a little bit with Common Stack. That's one of their sort of, uh, uh, you know, they have a design pattern around sort of DAOification. You know, like how do you? So all these voting systems we're doing by hand right now. How do we make it so that they are they can be transparent and digital, right? So because voting by phone the same way they're doing the financial transactions, exactly. they can exactly. just send an SMS. And exactly. I think that's yeah. important for yeah. for people to understand is. A lot of us, I forget that smartphones don't exist everywhere still. Yeah, yeah, or internet. Even if they do have smartphones, it's expensive to buy internet. And so we're dealing with and most of the populations we're dealing with don't. Uh, they have these little feature phones, which are a little button, you know, your ancient little Nokia phone. And um, and so the USSD or the SMS system, the the text messaging system, that is how they're interacting with the the, the community ledger. Yeah. And so the voting systems also need to be accessible through those as well. And as people start, you know, having internet and feature phone or you know smartphones, they can start using more GUIs and you know uh, Android apps and things like that to do that stuff. So that's something we're also working on. So we're really looking for, I mean, one of our biggest costs in all all of this work is um, is development is is developers and making really strong and usable open source technology for this. One of the things that you have to do is to measure results, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, so that your community can actually make informed decisions on how to design the next contract and so on. And yeah. On the other hand, because you are working with the Red Cross and so on. Your website, for example, says that probably in one of your projects, trust was increased by 77%. Mm, yeah. How do you come up with these kinds of metrics? Yeah, well, if a lot of the stuff we, we partner with universities and they end up doing all kinds of surveys and studies. So measurements of trust, there's a lot of like uh, like uh, trust games and stuff that, that go on. Um, and then also just questionnaires like, you know, on a scale from one to five, do you trust your neighbors, you know, yada, yada. And they'll do this, you know, with control groups and treatment groups. So we do the whole like randomized control trials where you're randomizing villages. Some are, some are using the currency, some are not. Some are doing other kinds of uh, interventions, you know, where they're getting cash treatment. So we work a lot with with those guys. Um, I mean, some of the metrics we get from actual transactions, you know, and in some cases we're also comparing it to like spending journals and national currency. So there's a lot of work. I mean, and, and that's also costly and time consuming. And um, so that's another place where we really we've been trying to get researchers to come out, even just look at the data set. You know, here's the data because we have a transparent data set. Um, we've actually published and, you know, it's totally anonymized data set on UK data archives, for instance. So you can look at the last, you know, half a million transactions and all these communities working with each other. Um, so that's interesting for data scientists to come and, you know, sort through that is super powerful. Um, and then in terms of like, uh, you know, measuring impact on the ground, 
I mean, you know, simple metrics like the increase in volume over time of trade in different categories like education and, you know, food or tree planting. We have a pretty, you know, good database because when people enter the system, they're also marketing their services, right? So it's a marketplace. And so you say what you're trying to sell in that marketplace. And then we'll do cross validation, verification of, of whether or not you are selling that. I mean, the, you know, we're ne it's never 100% accurate. Um, someone could change what they're selling or they, you might sell something else while you're saying you're selling planting trees. So there's always the certification layer. So back to this idea of, you know, you've got, you've got value and, and, you know, this commitments against services. You've got a ledger that's recording stuff and then you have validation, verification, right? So we do that when we create the vouchers, but it's also continually happening, right? So peer-to-peer -peer validation, like when if we continue to do trades with each other, well, that's there on the chain. You can see those ledgers. It's public. Um, and then also continuous validation from third parties coming in. And what we're trying to also build is, uh, you know, a network where those types of like, essentially they're like oracles, you know, coming in and saying, you know, there's Oracle in the modern blockchain sense, which I don't think people actually, it's better to just to say a certifier, you know, coming in and saying this community group is, uh, is doing, is, is biodiverse. We've counted the number of species, you know, or this community. So that certification layer or, or, you know, they're getting, uh, what were these regen credits or something like this, you know, eco credits. Wonderful. Or they're getting, you know, they're getting verified by all kinds of third parties. That Those are all wonderful uh, data objects to hold the sort of badges as, as, as like your, your, your CV or your, you know, your resume, you know, as a community and as individuals in the community. So that certification layer, that space is super important. So in the creation of the, of the vouchers and the credit system, but also in the, the maintenance of, uh, over time. And then also if you're marketing those vouchers now, and you're trying to get people to invest into the utility and divest from U.S. dollars and other kinds of crypto into that community. Well, that's a it's a wonderful data layer. It's as if you're it's you know kind of like a stock market, except it's a utility market, right? And you want to have as much uh, data as you can. So you have the transactional data, you have certification data, and all that together creates this kind of portfolio, right? And then you can have portfolios of many many different you know, uh, vouchers, some are redeemable for water, for instance, right? And so getting people to think about investment and, in, you know, into real utility, into regeneration, you know, I think of this as instead of, you know, regenerative finance, this is financing regeneration. Would that be fire? Yeah. Instead of yeah. refi. Uh, so I love the idea of that fire is like, you know, you're, you're, it's like a transmutation. You're taking value from, you know, this old world and you're converting it into actual service and utility with uh, curation, you know, with actual validation of these things. And so this is, you know, for, we've worked with a lot of donors and the idea is to, to kind of trans, uh, change those donors into saying, how can we actually become investors into this space that we're part of now? And so if I'm investing into this community here or I'm part of like, let's say a refi programs going on, and there's a community group there, can I buy some of the vouchers from them or can I offer some of my services from them? I could buy them in kind. Now I'm holding them and they're, they've gotten, you know, liquidity in exchange. They, they can go do something. They can use that money to, you know, extend their farm or whatever. And they're, you know, they're creating more service as a result. And that's what we want to see. Maybe they're peace building. Maybe they're doing all kinds of different, you know, uh, healing trauma. And now I'm holding this voucher for their, for their services. This voucher 
it could be in the contract that there's a decay over time. It goes back to the community. So I don't hold it forever. I'm, I'm actually being taxed back to the community. I could also connect this voucher to another one. I could be a liquidity provider and be that mycorrhizal fungi layer. So that's a really nice place for an impact investor to be is to say, look, I've invested into this utility and I'm going to connect this utility to that utility over there. I'm providing a service now. And that becomes how you save, air quotes. So you're, you're saving through providing utility. And that's a very different concept of saving, right? We're not trying to hoard and store. We're trying to make useful. And that, that, those, that liquidity provision of that space that's being created is really, really powerful because it, uh, it creates this, again, this like root mass, you know, like in, 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 you know, your mycorrhizal fungi and root layer is holding all these nutrients, right? That's your savings. And it's in the flow. There's no individual mushroom that's like holding it all. No, it's, it's a savings through connection. So I think that's really important. Like you're saving in the belly of your brother. Right. You know? I, was, I was going to bring that up. That's, yeah. I've heard that expression. It's like, where do you store your wealth? I asked of some indigenous yeah. person. It's like, yeah. the wealth is in my community. I don't need to right. hoard it in the bank or yeah. store it in the backyard or whatever they would do. Yeah. You've also worked with a community where there wasn't money and have more like the tribal relationship for resolving conflicts that was kind of there yeah. more than we have here. So how do you see that sort of those lessons connecting to supporting people through whatever kind of transition, collapse, whatever you want to call is happening in the, the more quote unquote modern world? So I, I mean, this first step to me around just extension of trust and credit, I think in, in a lot of communities that you know, like if you're a church group or you're, you know, part of a, a farmer's uh, cooperative or you're in a parent-teacher association or whatnot, like there, there is a lot of trust there and there is a lot of, you know, extension of credit and the ability to make collective promises. And I, and in, even individual promises. So like there, this idea that we can extend trust to people. I, what was this movie with the, this kid where he was like, um, pay it forward. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was basically saying like, just do something nice for three people. Right. And then they do something nice for three people. And they, so they like this idea of like, you know, like emergent viral extension of trust is really a powerful concept. I mean, it just, you know, you conceptually, you could imagine if I did something nice, you know, for three people, I'm essentially extending them my trust. And I, I just want them to extend that to three other people and whatnot. You'd have this viral expansion of trust in, in society. And I think that, you know, this is sort of like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, I think those are really powerful, basic concepts. And I, and I don't think what we're talking about is really terribly different from that. It's just creating structures around that um, that give us some sort of reliability and assurance you know, and we don't we don't always need those at certain scales. You know, once they've been established and once there is trust within a community and within an association of, you know, a, a cooperative, it's much, much more easy for clients and other people to sort of interact with that. Um, so I, I, I just, you know, just encouraging people to establish trust with other people and, and coming up with, um, you know, methodology for doing that, I think is is really the key. And, and I I don't think, you know, there's there's the technical layer and like the tooling around that I think does help and, and can, you know, so rather than 
maybe a printed contract and little paper vouchers and, and whatnot if we have you know open source systems that are not being enclosed or platformed so much you know that are connected to you know uh, uh, decentralized ledger systems like that can help because um, I don't have to deal with all of that myself anymore you know as, as you know someone having to deal with like a paper voucher or something like that um, so I think you know like what we do in Kenya in terms of we have a system that anyone in the country even without internet can make a type of a promise and allow that promise to be traded and then they can redeem it, right? They're just making a voucher. So, you know, you as a business or you as a cooperative, like just for you to make a voucher or a subscription to your services and allow it to be tradable and you redeem it, like it's a very simple concept. And I and I would like to see more businesses doing that. I mean, one of the great examples historically of, of a community currency starting, it was with, a, it was called Delhi Dollars. And it was it was in New York, or the Berkshires. This is before Berkshires existed, and uh, it was a deli that simply created a bunch of vouchers for deli sandwiches. And uh, their building was sort of collapsing, as the story I've heard. And they they uh, basically pre-sold like a year worth of uh, sandwiches, and uh, they used the money to build the next building that they needed, and they slowly by slowly redeem those vouchers, you know, I, very super stupidly simple concept. And it was cheaper. They offered some discount as well, right? So if you bought sort of bulk, you could get a discount on those. It was, there was no bank that was going to lend them anything. They couldn't get credit. And so they asked the community for credit, right? And they did it in this way. They issued a promise. They asked the community to accept that promise. And the community did. And the community could also trade those vouchers, right? So it became... A bit of a currency. There was this secondary circulation. So, super, super simple concept. Um, it's just a matter of you know how do you how do you practically do that. So instead of having to print your own daily deli dollars, if there's a very simple mechanism to create and honor vouchers, you know, with with the system for validation of those as well. So it's not like every youth in Kenya riding a motorcycle can create ten trillion of them and fool people. Like that's important, right? There's the validate. I mean, they, obviously, people trusted this deli. Right, so that trust layer was sort of taken care of, but that's not always the case. So having that trust validation layer is nice. So who's endorsing this, in other words? Right? That's so that that triketra again of service provider, ledger system, right? Or your and that could just be physical vouchers and endorsement, right? It could be that the that's a peer-to-peer -peer endorsement because the community already trusts you. Fine. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. something any community could do now, no matter what their financial state is in. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, again, you're building on you're building on the trust you building have with the trust people that has been destroyed yeah. through this current system. Well, yeah. I mean, you're you're or, persevering through that, and you're you're holding on to what's the real trust in your community and yourself, and your ability to honor those promises. And so, every CSA out there, community supported agriculture, every farm out there like that is you know producing real stuff um, has the ability to issue credit. They absolutely can. And that might just be back and forth between you and your clients. And I think that's also beautiful. You're establishing a relationship. And uh, for those things, those, these, these value systems, these vouchers, to start to act as a currency and networks of them to start to, to currency in the verb, that's been a beautiful thing. You know, I hope you check out some of our uh, visualizations of the networks in Kenya and you can see that mycorrhizal fungi layer growing, you know.
Beautiful. Thank you so much for your work. It's really incredible to see all of the stuff that you're doing. Mm. We're really, really grateful for showing us how it's done, basically, and leading the pioneer projects on this. Thanks. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even ask you why you do this because I think that your excitement just shines through yeah. so much. So my last question is just, what's your vision for the future? For you personally, what do you want to work on yeah. the next five years, your bioregion or global? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see this, I mean, kind of, you know, this, this through this lens of economic trauma. Like I can, I feel like if you, the longer you sort of think in this way around extension of credit and trust and what is money, you start to look at, the broken relationships that people have to the state and to these broken promises, essentially. And, um, and a lot of the collapse and a lot of the problems that we're having is, is based on this history, generations of traumatization around economics. Um, and so I see this as sort of a way to start healing that, uh, a way to start, you know, like rebuilding trust in communities that's based on something real. Um, And so I just, I, I enjoy that process. We're working a lot on, uh, at Grassroots Economics around creating kind of certifications and training courses around just doing this. So hopefully in the next year, we'll have sort of a, um, a little, a MOOC and some curriculum around being a grassroots economist. You know, what does that look like? A different type of economist. Um, so that's been nice. And, and ideally, you know, just people understanding these concepts and saying, oh yeah, we can extend credit, you know, whether, no matter what technology you're using or, or whatnot. I mean, we're, we're working on having apps and stuff like that that can be used globally. And, you know, it's all open source. So anyone can create this interface layer, right? You know, of, of helping people to easily uh, establish these types of contracts with each other, you know, technically. I mean, it's not easy in terms of, there's no substitute for trust, right? You can't delegate trust, essentially. Um, so I, yeah, I think um, I, even with states um, and, you know, large organizations like the Red Cross and, and specifically working with states, like getting them to start issuing vouchers redeemable for state services. And we're starting to see that in some countries where they're issuing vouchers redeemable for like a kilowatt hours, for instance, or energy or uh, vouchers even redeemable for for uh, tax credits and stuff like that, making them tradable. So states starting to create instruments that they do honor, and there is a contract behind them. To me, that that scaffolding, that support that is needed for the the national currency systems that are failing right now, it, they need real freaking services, right? And so, I mean, this is this has happened a lot in the blockchain space where people have overissued, like even Ethereum, and then now they're trying to reduce the supply and offer real services. So that's, that has to happen in a lot of these systems where they, you know, they didn't start well. They didn't start with real promises. You know what I mean? They overissued like the states and a lot of these crypto groups. They've, you know, with, with some vague promise of the future but without any actual real tangible service behind them. And now they're basically saying, okay, sorry guys, we're going to, we need to reduce the supply and we're going to produce real value. I think that can be a painful process, but that healing has to happen. And ideally, you know, I mean, it's going to also happen from the grassroots, you know. So, I mean, this is the, you know, our organization is called Grassroots Economics and we're a nonprofit foundation. And so, like, that idea of encouraging grassroots economies and bioregional economies to form and based on real commitments and real values that are investable or divestable from these other systems and at the same time encouraging states and encouraging larger organizations to Be honorable. Walk your talk. Make make clear contracts. You know, um, 
and show us, you know, like what is what is backing the U.S. dollar? Like, be be transparent about it, and where, you know, what is your minting rules and processes exactly? You know, and they're super obfuscated, and you know, like you know, banks are essentially right now able to create as much credit as they want. There's very little checks and balance, you know, for how much is being created all the time. And the same on the crypto sphere, right? Like any kid can create a trillion tokens at any time. So like we've, we've gone into like hyper inflation mode in so many different ways that it's time to just, you know, take a deep breath and look at, you know, what, how do we actually honor promises and rebuild trust in, in society? Mm. Beautiful. Stephen, is there anything else that you want to ask? No, I think we could talk forever and this yeah. is a good place to end. Okay. Yeah, totally. In that case, Will, is there anything else that you want to tell our audience, something that I didn't ask that Stephen didn't ask? Mm, I think I think I've said a bit. I don't know. You know, yeah, work on trusting people more, you know, and figure out how to how you as groups and families and, you know, communities can can extend more trust to each other. I think that's really the key. Okay. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks for joining us today. That was super fun. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, and to you listeners, thank you for joining us today as well. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you're already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth.